Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good evening. Good evening to you. What have you been watching lately on the streaming platform Netflix, Danny? I'm glad you asked. The other day I couldn't sleep and I was like, I'll just have a little peruse of Netflix. They've got all the hottest TV shows and I was like, could watch season two of Iron Fist. Haven't seen season one. Uh, so did you watch it? No. Um, <laughs> so I watched instead ten minutes of the film. My name is Lenny. Have you heard of this movie? Mm-mm. So it is a low-budget British gangster movie made a year or two ago. It stars Josh Hellman, an Australian actor best known for playing the role of William Stryker in Days of Future Past, the ex like the young William Stryker, and also the character of Slit in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh yeah, do you, do you have a vague idea I'm talking about? You know, like Nicholas Holtz, like the other guy in the car oh, with yeah. the spears. Yeah, 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 I remember him. There's a bit where like he points at him, quite you know, in the trailer. Yeah, that yeah. guy, but he's playing Lenny, uh, the Governor McLean, who was in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, and it's like a sort of Bronson s tale of like he used to be a bare knuckle boxer and then he became a bouncer. Do you see the guy who plays Barry the Baptist? Exactly. Yeah, uh, it's a very bad film. I was quite amused <laughs> well, by maybe, Josh Hellman's good. Uh, performance. In that uh, Lenny McLean, the real guy, had like a massive uh, underbite. So he's done that. So it's a real sort of like Tom Hardy-esque thing of just like a lot of grunting and uh, pacing about. I go, ooh, mm, uh, he's doing like a sort of, you know, he hasn't quite got the accent down. But he's sort of, I mean, what I'm doing now is not dissimilar to the actual movie. That sounds pretty good to me, uh, what, what you're doing now. It was quite bad. And then like, it's obviously got quite a low budget. And then he goes into a pub in the bits I watched and who should be there but John Hurt in his penultimate performance really I was like even in the age of like 79 like John Hurt had a mortgage to pay or something anyway I scrolled for the rest of the film and um, <laughs> looked like just sort of quite bad so don't watch it or do it's on Netflix isn't it you know well, I've been. I've you. You've recommended to me quite a lot of TV lately, right? You guys like the the show Succession, which you say is pretty good. That's There's good. There's the new series of BoJack Horseman, which is quite good. Excellent. So obviously, I have been watching the uh, show Castlevania, the um, <laughs> from the nineties. <laughs> no, it's a uh, it's an adaptation of the video game. Yeah. Castlevania. Yeah, I had it on Game Boy. Yeah, do you yeah. ever play one? I think there's like loads of them. There's like right, loads I had and one loads of them. Of Castlevanias, uh, but it's all about people trying to defeat Dracula. And Netflix produced an animated uh, sort of anime style TV show about, uh, you know, ad- adapted from the video game, uh, which is written by Warren Ellis, who I think is like a comic book writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know him. And uh, personally. Star- <laughs> uh, stars Richard Armitage. Um, and so it has like relatively good production values. It's very silly. The main notable thing about it is like the levels of gore are just absurd and it's really not clear why. Like, um, 
so the, the, it's got a quite a ridiculous plot involving uh dracula who like, seems like a relatively nice chap who lives in a kind of mobile castle floating over the earth in the first scene he's visited by a woman who wants to like it's in the 15th century and she wants to like bring science to the heathens right um and he's got all the science laboratories in his castle and stuff because he i guess he's because he's immortal or something sure so uh skip forward 20 years they're married uh she's being burned at the stake as a witch for having consorted with the great satan uh skip forward another year <laughs> and dracula brings his po- promised revenge on the city which involves him like unleashing the armies of hell as a result of uh, the death the death of his wife uh, so it goes through all this very quickly but like as soon as the armies of hell are unleashed like they're just like tearing people's guts out eating babies just killing children and stuff it's like a bit ridiculous i was you know i was like good good lord slow down castlevania this but, is adapted but, from a but, game for children and it's a cartoon you know good i don't know you does know? one of them have like a sort of whip staff yeah sort of thing yeah i remember that from the game that was the main weapon yeah, the main the main guy is this kind of like disaffected loner who's a previously a vampire fighting champion, and now he's been cast out, and he just kind of, of like wanders the earth, you know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Yeah, <laughs> and and then he's convinced against his better judgment to get back into the fight against the vampires. Yeah, but he has like an anti-vampire whip. I can lend so, you my Game Boy if you want to play the game. I'm I might need to play watching. the game, and then I'll then I'll be like really fucking into the TV show because the characters will have a bit more resonance. I, remember I was with really me. shit at the game, so I really completed like the first two levels. I mean, there's like another fifty more. So, yeah, well, maybe you should watch the show, and I'll inspire you to get back into it. Maybe the, the only other notable thing about the show is that it's like an odd kind of Netflix uh, thing because it was originally intended to be a um, uh, feature film. And it's been adapted into a TV show, but like not the length of it has not been increased. <laughs> so like it was in some way rewritten by Warren Ellis to suit the TV format. But the result is that you have four. The first season is four episodes and each one is 25 minutes long. So it's about the length of a right, movie. Okay. And it doesn't it's not really divvied up in an obvious like episodic format. So <laughs> I watched it. But it's just, just end mid scene. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, almost actually. The first episode pretty much does end mid scene. Uh, and so, yeah, it is like. Why didn't they just release it as a film? I don't know. It's like, well, you could have just got... Uh, maybe I wouldn't have watched it, though. So, yeah. you know, if, uh, maybe, like, if it's a TV show, you're like, oh, I'll just sit in for 20 minutes, and then you finish it, you're like, right, that wasn't right. very much. And so it gets you in that kind of binge-watch mode, even though you're not really binging anything, because when, when it all finishes, you've only watched about 90 minutes. So, One day... Yeah, just an odd thing. The guy who runs Netflix, after he gets out of rehab, after he's, you know... <laughs> <laughs> After all the crazy drugs he was on when he was commissioning all this stuff, he's going to tell a, he's going to write a great book. But what was going, what was on? going on? What was going on at yeah. Netflix? But they did commission a full second series of Castlevania, which has a more normal eight episodes. So that's obviously next on my viewing list above cool. all this like actual proper TV. Yeah. Watch some like guy kill vampires or something. Sounds awesome. All right, so Danny, when we're not talking about Netflix, what are we doing? What's going on? What is this podcast? Let me let me explain to you what this podcast is. So Film Chat is a podcast all about an unlucky and love female yoga instructor called Sam Foster. When she's not teaching yoga, she's either disastrously dating a series of losers or complaining about her love life to her gay best friend, Danny Moran. One night, after a heavy drinking session, the impossible happens. They go to bed together and Sam gets pregnant. The two raise their son as an unconventional but happy family unit. That is until Sam finds her Mr. Right and wants to leave Danny and take the kid with her. But Danny, feeling betrayed, sues Sam for custody of their son and what follows is a bitter legal battle in which lifelong friendships are almost destroyed. As what I would be saying, this was a adaptation of the famously terrible film The Next Best Thing, starring Madonna a pop star in a movie that's linked to a thing nice this is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films 
Bounds. Bounds. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a man whom were we to have a child together uh, would be no problem. I think we'd both be great dads. Thanks. So uh, that'd be fine. Uh, here's Sam Foster. This week on Film Chat, a review is born of A Star is Born, the tear-jerking awards contender starring Lady Gaga and Lord Cuckoo, which is how I'll be referring to Bradley Cooper from now on forever. Uh, Danny will also be giving his verdict on Mike Lee's historical epic Peter Lou, which chronicles the events leading up to the British government's massacre of unarmed protesters in 1819. The contemporary lessons of this film are as follows. Protest, good. Class consciousness, good. Ruling class, bad. Rory Kinnear, good. Mike Lee, good. <laughs> the suffix Lou, underused. I don't have anything else on that, sort of jokes on that. Uh, we'll also be talking about spooky moments in non-horror films, since it is Halloween, after all, at least at the time of recording. By the time I release this, it might well be a different, you know, Christmas I mean, or Christmas. something. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, and we'll be shaking our heads at a pair of ill-advised sounding projects from an increasingly unreliable Steven Spielberg. That's my opinion of Spielberg at the moment. All that should leave just enough time for me to celebrate the news that James Gunn might direct a Suicide Squad sequel by pitching my script for Suicide Squad 2, Revenge of Slipknot. The movie will focus on the most underused anti-hero of the original, Slipknot, a man who can, quote, climb anything. Here comes Slipknot, the man who can climb anything. Wonderful. In the first scene, he is revealed to have survived his apparent death in the original when his neck gets blown up while he's climbing, and sporting a big scar on his neck and a newly enlarged climbing rope, Slipknot is rehired by the formidable Amanda Waller to lead the Suicide Squad's most dangerous mission yet. They must rescue the president from the top of Mount Everest. The film will feature many obstacles that generate epic climbing sequences, such as big walls, a redwood tree with Harley Quinn at the top, and she can't get down, uh, many rolling hills, <laughs> the cliffs of Dover, a rope, a tall rope, and so on, so on and so forth. <laughs> A pole covered in oil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, with a naval hat at the top. And whoever gets the hat graduates from the academy. <laughs> so this is a killer idea, man. <laughs> Thanks, sign, man. Sign me up. It's a big climbing DC film. DC Universe need you on board to sort that fucking mess out. Yeah, they, well, they keep hiring and rehiring people, so why not me? Yeah, why not you? Hire and fire me, DC. And then rehire me. housekeeping from last week uh danny and i were responding to um uh mick yeah danny and i were responding to mick's recommendation of seeing dublin old school at the london film festival a film that neither of us liked very much we got a bit giggly and well i think we just drew it out into a bit more of an enormous dramatic segment than it needed to be i could have cut it down but i didn't so (laughs) it's two mistakes really A uh, friend of mine who I was speaking to about uh, listening to the episode described it as, a, quote, a bit harsh. So that made oh, me rethink no. some of my choices. Anyway, sorry about that, Mick, but you seem to have taken in a pretty good uh, humor. And you tweeted us to say, uh, reminding you that I also recommended the work. So at worst, I got a 50% recommendation rate. 
And that was a good documentary. What does Tweet me realise is that why are we attacking Mick, someone who goes out of the way to recommend us films, when none of our other fucking listeners are doing anything? You mean if we're going to alienate any listeners, it, it should, should be, be the others. Everyone else. Yeah, for the few, not the many. So, <laughs> Mick, you are our favourite listener. All the other listeners not writing in, giving us recommendations, not happy. Not happy. Buck not up happy. your game, guys. Yeah, exactly. You can go and subscribe Take a to a different podcast. page out of Mick's book, why don't you? Yes. Gah. Quite right. Um, however, that said, our <laughs> other listeners have been a little more in touch with us uh, today because you've been playing them like, you know, a, a, a drum. <laughs> like a like Cherokee a, drum. <laughs> like a malevolent child plays like a rusty violin or something. Yeah, you've been manipulating them into uh, talking to us by asking an intriguing question. So you asked on Twitter and on Facebook, which film has scared you the most, which wasn't a horror film? This yeah. is obviously prompted by it being Halloween. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I was trying to think. Well, I couldn't just say what's a scary movie. That's too boring. So an even a slightly less boring question, <laughs> but also quite vague and open ended, and can be interpreted in many ways, which it was. Shall I give a few of our listeners' responses? Please do. Uh, Gail Macanena Wood said, "Does the witches count?" That's an interesting question. Obviously, your initial question does prompt questions about what constitutes a horror film. I know. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, the thing is, it's about witches, right? So. I know it's a kids movie and it's well. I mean, it's I, like but, a kids. It's like a kids horror film, I guess. Yeah, I mean, but I'm with direct, Gail. It's for kids, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that is a terrifying film. And it's I. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but I literally had nightmares for a week after I watched it. My sister had to sleep on my top bunk. Mm. I have bunk beds, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think people could pick that up. How, how else are you going to interpret that? <laughs> In case you're confused by your reference to a bunk, is because we have bunk beds. So I would say. I mean, I guess. You know, if you went to the, I was going to say blockbusters, they don't exist. But if you went to like, you know, HMV, does that still exist? It didn't go yes. bankrupt like two years ago. Yeah, but, but it's still out there. It, would, it wouldn't be in the horror section, right? So I guess movies which aren't in the horror section of the, your, you know, on the Netflix library count. Yeah, so. I guess so. Yeah, it's got a horror director. It's about witches. Yeah. But it's sort of for children. So it sneaks it in there, I guess. Um, Hoppo. Uh, loyal listener, <laughs> yeah. Hotbo, um, pre- premium Mick. tier. <laughs> uh, he he says the end of Man in the Iron Mask haunts me. In fact, the whole premise: what if someone who looks like you not only stole your life, but spoilers? I'm gonna spoil, yeah, the, the Man in the Iron Mask here for anybody. Uh, locked your head in a metal case forever. That's pretty dark for a Saturday afternoon swashbuckling adventure. I haven't seen the movie. Have you seen it? Yeah, but he gets his comeuppance. Briefly go into it. DiCaprio plays King Louis, and he's a total shit. And he's got an identical twin brother who he thinks might threaten his claim to the throne. Played by Tammy Maguire. Play- <laughs> Played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And he puts him in an iron mask, and then the uh, the musketeers, the four musketeers, they're all a bit old now, rescue them. And at the end, the good DiCaprio takes the place and says, "I'm King Louis," and locks the bad one up. So even though it is horrific, it is happening to a nasty man. Yes. But yeah, the act of, you know... I mean, it's based on a true story. There was a man in the Iron Mask. And he was locked up in the French prison for 30 years. And no one knows who he is. It's even more terrifying. Even more terrifying. Um, Hopper also suggests When the Wind Blows. I don't know what that is. Oh, mate, that is quite dark. It's a Raymond Briggs cartoon about uh, a hypothetical nuclear war. Oh, right. That rings a bell. Yeah. David Bowie did the soundtrack. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Diane Noel has a good suggestion. Probably the first act of The Matrix. 
The bit with the belly button bug was horrifying. I think this this one resonates with me because I remember getting a bit of an illicit thrill from watching The Matrix that I was like too young to be seeing it. Yeah. And I was definitely younger than its 15 certificates um, when I watched it. So I was probably about like 12 or something like that. And I remember finding it like very intense. I think it was like the most sort of <laughs> full on film I had seen up to that point. I was very much like, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. And it's true. That's sort of the shit they do to him when like the flesh covers up his mouth and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. It, you know, it is horrifying so i agree with that one um we've also got the suggestion of deliverance from at guardians bhf i mean that's pretty horrific is it a horror movie though i feel like it sort of is isn't it i don't know i guess you know like it's kind of like the hills have eyes or something right just the evil rednecks yeah so it's sort of it i don't know i I guess it's sort of a question of definitions i guess um there's another we've got another sort of kids movie suggestion from georgia mills she she suggests spy kids which is his is horrifying. Can't comment on that. There's those thumb thumb minions that were just like made out of thumbs. It's pretty scary. Sounds very scary. And the Mario <laughs> Brothers movie, which says, scared the crap out of Tiny Me. The little fungus growth man coming out of the ceiling. Ah, that's <laughs> just how she writes it. Um, so is it like little men? Is that a sort of thing that scares her? There's it. like little thumb men in Spy Kids and there's like a fungus growth man. I don't really remember that, to be honest. There's a dinosaur in the Mario Brothers movie, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, and Bob Hoskins. And Bob Hoskins and a dinosaur <laughs> and maybe also the little fungus growth man. Some more suggestions. Going to rattle through these. Just so exciting to get all these suggestions. Um, Bell Albert says, I found Lord of the Rings really scary when I was a kid. Gollum is pretty creepy. It is scary. I remember finding the fetish of the ring really scary. The ring wraiths. Ring wraiths are very, very scary. Very scary. The bit where Bilbo goes a bit, his eyes go black. Yes. It's a good jump scare. That is a good jump scare. Yeah, there's definitely just, like... just agreeing with you. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> well, yeah, there's definitely out-and-out bits of horror in it. So, yeah, it counts. <laughs> he make, well, he makes the most of his background doing horror, Peter Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember finding that really scary. I remember finding the end very scary. I genuinely thought Samwise Gamgee was going to drown. That's how invested I was in the film. <laughs> Nowadays, it's very obvious that he's not going to drown. But I was so, like, caught up in the film at this point, I, you know... I've never been caught. I don't think I've ever been as more emotionally invested in films since then. In a way, yeah, it's a high point for me in cinema watching. Well, I just, like, I've, know, I'm so old and jaded. Caught now. both of us at exactly the right age, I think. Oh, mate. Um, Kim Sheen suggests the scarab beetles crawling under people's damn skin in the Mummy. She yeah. says, "Fuck me up when I was a kid." Things crawling under the skin—very terrifying. That's a bit of in both the Mummy and horror. the Matrix. Yeah. Um, and James Andrews suggests Return to Oz. That is. It's terrifying 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 the wheelers have you seen it no oh mate <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know it's in any movies would you just do to me reel these off i guess my parents protected me from some of these terrifying films i've got a weird suggestion which is something that really terrified me as a kid was the uh the film the king and i there's a bit where they do where is it set siam so thailand they do like a, a not chinese opera a thai opera version of uncle tom's cabin and I think it is genuinely one of the ter- most terrifying things put put on screen. They've all got big masks. There's like uh, this beating drum. There's like this chorus about how they got to run away from Uncle Tom and stuff. It's it's like this whole like mini play in the movie, but it's I, yeah, generally chills me to this day. I saw Lord. it on TV like a few years ago. It was like ITV two, and I was like, this is still <laughs> properly terrifying. Cool. So that's that the right answer. 
that was that was the right answer. That by the way, nobody got it. It was the king and I. <laughs> you win again. I win again. Brilliant! What a spooky chat. So appropriate. Ooh. Superhero films announced. Casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. You know what we need right now, Sam? We need people who are going to talk truth to power. Who is the best writer who's, you know, good at that? Aaron bloody Sorkin Aaron Sorkin yeah uh, who's the best guy to produce a project of this nature uh, let me think <laughs> Stevie Spielberg Stevie Spielberg did you see the post uh, owned Trump brutal yeah. and who's the best actor he could possibly you know really insightfully look at America how it is now Sasha Baron Cohen Sasha Baron Cohen it's like it's, <laughs> I've always got the right answers so you will be delighted to hear that those three are teaming up for a film about the Chicago 7 which, if you're not familiar with, was a famous landmark trial in um, American legal history where a group of activists were put on trial. Initially, the Chicago 8, but then Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panthers, uh, kept on yelling during the trial, and it was uh, bound and gagged and then dismissed. So Chicago 8 became the, Ch- became the Chicago 7. And they were on trial because they had a massive protest at the 1968 Democratic uh, rally, and they were told they there was a bunch of prohibitive things put before the march where like, they couldn't march before 11 there's all these curfews and stuff all this undemocratic legislation was put in place to stop people marching and they did anyway and then the, the organizers were put on trial and were eventually acquitted or charged and later acquitted i don't know but it was a massive deal and abby hoffman the ringleader was uh openly they're all openly contemptuous to the judge in quite a funny way you can see why i'd make a good movie and sasha baron especially Cohen, a good sorkin movie exactly a lot of speechifying so this Steven Spielberg has wanted to make this for a while. Uh, directors such as Paul Gringos were attached to certain points, and uh, Sorkin initially wrote the script in 2007, but he's since made Molly's Game. He's like, wait a second, I'm a director now. So he is going to write and direct a film, and Sasha Baron Cohen, who was previously attached by Abby Hoffman, is still attached, but it's not clear whether he will remain attached. What do you think about this, Sam? I'm just really excited for the contemporary resonances. <laughs> I just really am looking forward to all like the nods and winks to current politics. Yeah. I feel like the post was basically a five point palm exploding heart technique thing <laughs> on Trump, but he just hasn't quite walked far enough. But it's just put that in his like it's gonna take him out eventually. Yeah, That's yeah. a fucking ticking time bomb. It's yeah, gonna yeah. destroy him. Yeah. And whatever's left <laughs> of his bloated corpse will be eviscerated by this film. No, I don't know. I just sounds awful. I think like um, I just feel like the entire film is kind of laid out before me, and it's it's just going to be like another insufferably like pleased with itself film about uh, uh, you know exactly like people speaking truth to power and stuff like that. I just there's the, the entire attitude of it is what feels like out of step with contemporary politics. You know, I yeah. think that. It, like it's Sorkin and Spielberg make these really comfortable movies about like heroic people who just do the right thing and you know shout at the correct people and then solve the problems and then you know, good wins out at the end and stuff and in an increasingly chaotic and apocalyptic world it just feels like you know flannel and <laughs> um uh and so I'm sure this could potentially be made into a really um exciting story and uh it is obviously very 
um, dramatic and um, issues around authoritarianism and cracking down on protesters are clearly very relevant to today but I just can't think of people who I'd less want to see bring the story to the screen than these characters. Yeah. Also because they're such radicals. Everyone who's on trial, like the way it's going to so clearly be smoothed out and doesn't sort of like Trumbo-esque thing of like, right, exactly, I'm, just talk- yeah. I'm just speaking. I'm just, it's like Mr. Smith goes be, to Washington, exactly, but like yeah. eight of them. Well, it's the, I mean, yeah, Trumbo I think is a, is a good example because that's a film which is like, uh, which is about communism in some kind of a way, but then it's like flattened out into just being this like free speech thing where he might as well have just been like banned from saying a like arbitrary set of words and that he wanted to say, you know, where like all the politics and all his beliefs are kind of reduced to like, like sharing lunch or something like that when he explains what communism is to his daughter. Um, and, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I just, you know, I don't, I just assume this will be the same and we'll be like, we'll just be fucking shit. Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen is also a good twelve years too old to be playing Abby Hoffman at this point. <laughs> They're all like in their late twenties, early thirties. These like young radicals at the time. Well, he can so do anything, can't he? He's he can a, do anything. He's a, <laughs> he a mercurial. Just, yeah, he can become anybody. That's his whole thing. He can be Ali G. He can be this person who's twenty years younger than him. This like legendary protester or whatever. Yeah, just can't. I mean, you know, I'm, if it, if it comes to fruition, I'm sure that as much as we, you know, can see how the movie will play out and the things that will annoy us, our listeners will be able to imagine our review of it, and I can't wait to deliver that <laughs> that inevitable. We just start writing automatic a, a sort review. of Sorkin-esque speech to you know take down the movie. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You yeah. know the fucking the music change. Let me tell you something about Sorkin. It's like real off a lot of statistics. Yeah. Just wish these guys would stop working for a bit. Just, you know, leave a bit of space for other people to, like, pass judgment on what's going on right now. It is, like, a bit of an... Int- well, because it's coming so soon after the post, it gets rushed into production. But, like, that movie is all about reporting how Vietnam was a total sham. But, like, that's what Abby Hoffman and the Chicago 7 were yelling about, like, four years previously. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's He's just, like, point. he made a movie about the Christine journalists. It's like, you know, these, like, these regular guys were talking about it, like... So it kind of like negates his previous film he made. I don't know. Feels like it's exposing the inherent like unheroiz- unheroism of the characters of his main movies. They're like these are the greatest people in the world. It's like they're very very late to the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, it seems awful. I hope he's not producing some other sort of ill-advised political tale. Uh, what's the next news story, Sam? Glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg has another iron in the fire. What? Um, he and J.J. Abrams have commissioned Lena Dunham to uh, write a script for a film about a Syrian refugee who is stranded at sea. Um, the adaptation is of a um, book called A Hope More Powerful Than a Sea, which is the story of uh, Doa Al-Zamel, who survived the sinking of a boat on which she was attempting to cross the Mediterranean while her uh, fiancé uh, died. The book was written by um, someone from the United Nations Refugee Agency called Melissa Fleming. Um, And uh, Spielberg and Abrams are going to produce and uh, direct her for the project has not yet been announced. Um, But it's going to be, for some reason, written by Lena Dunham. Not the most obvious choice. (laughs) She usually writes about Brooklyn hipsters, but... To put it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Lena Dunham has been... Um, criticized before on social media would not be the first time she's had like a variety of things there's like some weird recurring thing that people having go at her about like about a dog that she got and didn't look after 
Um, and uh, she was obviously criticized for um, whitewashing on the show Girls. Yeah. Uh, for not having any black characters. And um, and then there was this other thing that I saw on social media, which I was not aware of. But apparently she ends up with Riz Ahmed at the end of the TV show. Wow. And um, OK, this is a spoiler for Girls. So if you don't want to know how the show Girls no, ends, please go. But apparently she has a kid with Riz Ahmed, but like they cast like a half black, half um, Latino baby. And it's just like doesn't look like Riz Ahmed and Lena Dunham's baby in any way. <laughs> just okay. rather than like half white, half like South Asian looking. Feels like course correcting would have been wrong there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it just seems like a very strange choice. So the news story about this on The Guardian has an example of um, some of the criticism that Dunham has received from Suzanne Simon, a Syrian Cuban social media um, editor, sorry, the Syrian Cuban social media editor of Romper. She wrote, please leave Syrian stories alone if you aren't Syrian, and especially if you are Lena Dunham. (laughs) She also questioned whether Dunham had ever ever donated to refugee relief efforts, adding, just curious if if you've at least done that before you profit off my people's pain. Um, CNN Digital Studios reporter Nia Shastri said, anyone else take issue with a person who has shown very little regard for the importance of representation in her work writing a Syrian refugee's story? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, it just seems like a strange choice. Yeah, bizarre. It's quite funny because, like, I watched the first series, of, no, first two series of Girls. I like the first series. I think the general wisdom is the second one is less good. And I sort of phased out. And then, like, basically, like, in the last five years, she became, like, the voice of a generation to, like, everyone hates her. Like, it feels like she's a subject who's constantly a lot of vitriol towards... I well, mean, I think she became emblematic of a certain kind of waspish, um, yes, <laughs> like very white feminism. Yeah, yeah. And um, I also, I guess, like she was kind of overtaken by events in a way, and that like her show, which was capturing some sort of zeitgeist, was like that that whatever that period of time was has gone completely. Yeah, you know? uh, we're in an entirely different uh, time now. It's an interesting kind of question in a way, like the you know little. When people talk about whitewashing, it's usually about casting actors, or what does it extend to writers? I mean, in this case, you probably shouldn't be Lena Dunham, who it just sounds like a weird like name of a hat choice. It's like, who's yeah. a woman writer? Uh, Lena Dunham. I guess there must be like a million examples of something similar happening in the past when it's just some like Hollywood hack who's like written a million hot like warming tales, and it's just some white guy who, yeah, will, yeah. you know, write anybody's story. Like, I mean, who wrote the who wrote Captain Phillips? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was. Shit, what is, I used to know his name. <laughs> Billy yeah, something. He wrote Shattered Glass as well. Yeah, Billy Ray. Billy Ray. There you go. He's not Somali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think probably part of the story is the fact that Lena Dunham is, I guess, a very someone who's got a huge presence on social media and has been the target of like specific, quite social media-driven backlashes before around representation. Yeah. Uh, much more so than if they just gotten like I don't know Stephen Zalian or like one of these other guys who's like written a million movies but is a white man in Hollywood yeah, to, yeah. Just, to just like adapt this story that also has nothing to do with him. Um, so it probably is a little bit like outsized because it is her specifically, but it is weird. I mean, like, what has she done that's remotely similar to this? I don't know. Yeah, her thing is like sort of like a couple of steps up from Mumblecore, right? So like. <laughs> Yeah, woman v the element Syrian drama. It does seem. <laughs> I do like the I, this kind of trajectory of like in the first series of girls was 
criticize representation. So I gradually like turn it up until I had like a mixed race baby resemblance. And now I'm writing a Syrian refugee drama. Now I'm going to remake Roots. And then, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to call HBO and get them to recommission that show about how slavery didn't stop or yeah, whatever. The, the more she tries to tackle these issues, the angrier people get with her. Oh, man. She's in the new Tarantino movie. Is she really? Yeah, she got cast in that. Wow. There's a lot of like Twitter's like, you know, people who already hate the sound of like the new Tarantino movies, like it just got worse somehow. Yeah, Lena Dunham's in it. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it had yeah, it feels a bit like her moment's over. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe she's a fantastic, empathetic person who can fully embody the experience of a Syrian refugee. Let's uh, not prejudge. Maybe the fact that her moment seems over is why Tarantino cast her. Is that's like you know one of the things he's good at is bringing, yeah, bringing, bringing people back. She's prepare for a Travolta. He, did it, with, he did it with Travolta. <laughs> now what should happen with Dunham? He did it once, and he's always apparently doing it, but it only really worked one time. Shit! This uh, this article concludes with a little recitation of her previous controversies. No, please. Do you want to hear about yeah, a few more Dunham controversies? To play us out. <laughs> to play us out. To conclude, some other like storms, some social media storms that Dunham has found herself at the center of. In 2014, she was accused of sexually molesting her sister as a seven-year-old. I think she wrote in her own like memoir about like playing with her sister's vagina in bed or something that just sounded like a bit weird. Um, Jesus. Two years later, she apologized for uh, criticizing football player Odell Beckham Jr.'s behavior at a Met Gala event. I don't know the details of that. And later the same year, apologized for joking about abortion in a podcast. This is just how this has been written in this story, so this could be anything. Uh, in 2017, she again apologized, more apologies from Dunham, for defending girls writer Murray Miller, I remember this one, after oh, yeah. actor Aurora Perrineau accused him of rape. Um, she just, you know, just caught controversy. Walking disaster. Walking PR, dis- PR nightmare. <laughs> It's not what you want. Yeah, but I, I just want to see some of those emails when they picked her out. They fired James Gunn for like a bunch of tweets. Like She's got about a million of them every day. Yeah, that's They're all true. controversial. Yeah. Yeah, oh, Spielberg, what are you doing? And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astonishingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Peter Liu, this is directed by Mike Lee and written... Well, written by him and the cast. He has this kind of famous process where he sort of researches and researches and then gets casts it and then they everyone sort of like grows their characters in an organic way. And the plot is quite simple. It's just basically depicting the events that led up to the Peterloo Massacre almost 200 years ago this year, I think. Um, It'll be next year. I think it's 1890. Next year. That's the one. I've seen this film. You haven't, but... I just looked up the stuff earlier. Ah, very good. And um, it focuses, a few of the characters it focuses on is Maxing Peak, who's this sort of matriarch of a large northern family who, as was the case of every working class person in Britain, was like basically in abject poverty and only 2% of the population could vote. And the Peterloo March was to go hear a speaker called Henry Hunt, played by Rory Kinnear. And they were just basically arguing for representation in Parliament. Their aims were pretty low, really, given the things... And the film basically depicts them, some of the key organisers on the left, as well as the sort of evil, rich dandies, including uh, the Prince Regent and the Prime Minister. Here is a clip of Maxine Peak sort of expressing some disdain about the idea of the march. There's going to be a big march. Aye, Mother. At Peter's Field. Outside. Aye. Not indoors. No. In broad daylight. Yes. On a Monday. 
A Monday? I know, it's daft. Second Monday in August. Not go to work? Aye, we'll have to make do without us. Well, get the sack. Not if all the mills turn out. Playing with fire? No, Mother, this one will be different. Different? Oh. Well, there's hundreds going. Women and children and all. To turn out in our Sunday best. Aye. Oh, well, I best get my darling needles out then. So, I had kind of high hopes for this. I really enjoyed Mr Turner. I like Mike Lee. I'm a massive lefty, you know, quinoa chomping, flat white drinking, you know, (laughs) champagne swilling, Corbin loving uh, guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so this is, you know, right up my market. That's a phrase. Right up Brandeis Brandeis (laughs) University, the guys with the Ben Sean drawings. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But I would the film was a, a big disappointment, really. And I think my main complaint is that it's too broad, both uh, in its scope and its tone. And the architects of the massacre are these ridiculous old posh dandies who are literally in most scenes like swilling wine and discussing with great disdain the poor and the stupid poor and all this. And I'm sure, you know, it's probably accurate to the time. But the way it's written and performed is like almost like pantomime. And I mean, to single out one of the actors, like Vincent Franklin, who's a great actor. He was in Cucumber and he played um, Stuart Pearson in the thick of it. But he's giving like a full on you know, moustache twirling performance. And I'm like, where is the trademark Mike Lee naturalism gone? It felt very odd from the start. And this sits very awkwardly. He's kind of like broad evil men in rooms chuckling about the poor with the actual events, which are horrific. So it's a weird mix of like social realism and slightly more pantomime bits. And I think the problem stems from the fact that the film's principal aim is to kind of educate you and it kind of gives you a lot of details about the facts and the factors that, you know, led to the massacre. But at the sort of expense of the dramatic urgency of the film, and the result is the actual massacre, which concludes the film, that's not really a spoiler, feels more like the conclusion of a lecture when it should be really shocking and impactful. And it doesn't help that Mike Lee is not really an action director. You know, I don't think he's moved from a tripod in maybe like 40 years. And like, he just hasn't got that kind of dynamic. I know it's a cliche, this old Paul Greengrass, like shaky cam thing. But I just don't think he's good at showing people in motion. People in rooms talking, he's, right. a, he's a genius at. But big climactic action sequences, not so much. People walking, okay. People, people walking, running, okay. useless. Saying that, I was never bored by it. And some of it is funny deliberately. And Mike Lee does have this ability with actors and scenes and staging where they're all kind of quietly compelling and you kind of sort of settle into this groove and it's kind of very watchable. And it's not meandering necessarily. Like every scene has a purpose. It's just, I don't know. Far be it for me to criticize the great Mike Lee, but perhaps maybe focusing on a few characters would have been better because it's a bit, it's kind of all gets a bit lost in its scope. Because the approach isn't massively dissimilar to Mr. Turner, which also, which I reviewed on episode one of Film Chat, available on ACAST, um, in that that was a movie that sort of depicted all the small and big moments in his life, but it kind of created this big, rich character. And I think that really works when it's like the focus is one person, but when the focus is a huge event, which is also a very unmikely thing, is you, you know, his things start with characters and they sort of build towards something, but he's like reverse engineers from an event, which feels, maybe that's why... This movie is less successful, not really his comfort zone. But um, it just feels a bit disparate. And the characters do kind of fall into cliches. Like, Maxine Peake is a kind of, like, borderline Monty Python, ooh, the North. Yeah. Kind of character. I think you'd struggle to 
describe the characters without just describing their job or their function in the script, which is a problem and a very unlikely thing. So kind of disappointment, really. If it's, it's kind of well-intentioned. It's not a bad film. It's just it's a bit bloodless in a way. I feel like it should be like emotionally like devastating. Yeah. But it was kind of too easy. It's kind of easy to watch. I don't think it should have been. I don't know. So yeah, a weird misfire, I would say. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. Sorry. I wanted to love it. I just thought it was okay-ish. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Simon and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? So, A Star is Born. This is the directorial debut of the actor Bradley Cooper, Lord Cuckoo, uh, starring himself and Lady Gaga. And it is the, uh, well, according to Wikipedia, the fourth remake of the 1937 film A Star is Born which was subsequently made into a 1954 film, a 1976 film, and a 2013 Bollywood romance. Wow. Uh, according to the Wikipedians, they've uh, noticed that. Um, the plot is about Jackson Maine, who's uh, played by uh, Lord Cuckoo. He's a famous country music singer who's struggling with uh, drink uh, and drug abuse, and he stumbles upon uh, Lady Gaga's character called Ali, who is uh, working... Well, she works in a, a restaurant and um, at night she performs as a kind of uh, dive bar singer and he sees her perform uh, La Vie en Rose um, in a sort of uh, a very impressive routine and then they, they spend that evening hanging out um, and then he sort of takes her under his wing and makes uh, a star out Ooh. of her and they fall in love and it, and it charts their romance together. Here is a clip of uh, the two leads having a chat and getting to know each other. I started writing this song the other day. Maybe that could work, like as a chorus or something. I'm off the deep end. Watch as I dive in. I never meet the ground. Crash through. Can I tell you a secret? I think you might be a songwriter. So this remake was in production for a long time, and initially it was going to be directed by Clint Eastwood, (laughs) and it was going to start Beyonce. 
Um, and somehow it is kind of shaken out that Bradley Cooper has directed it. He must have made one hell of a pitch, <laughs> <laughs> having never directed anything before. Um, but this film's had... I mean, it's been out for a little while, so we're coming a bit late to do the party on it. Um, and it's had uh, a lot of really good reviews, and it's being talked about as a possible um, Oscar movie. And having seen it, I think that it's probably got a, a really good shot. It seems to fit everything that the Academy would want from an Oscar film. It's very well made. It's got a good kind of meta narrative behind the camera um, in that uh, they, they like it when people leave their comfort zones in some sort of a way, you know, whether they're wearing crazy prosthetics or like, you know, they look different. A lot um, of acting in this movie. But there's a lot of acting in it. Uh, the actor is directing it. The singer is acting in it. <laughs> the actor is singing. The actor is singing in it. Uh, Cats like, and dogs he even, living like, together. He helps like write this. Brandy Cuba helped write the songs and everything. It's this obvious passion project for him. Um, and it's a very, well, I thought it was a quite accomplished, uh, thing really. Um, it's obviously not reinventing the wheel and, you know, which will not surprise anybody given that it's like the fourth remake of one film. Um, and the story, even if it wasn't a remake, you know, is quite a sort of archetypal kind of like, you know, rise and fall story or like, yeah. you know, a declining person meeting a rising person. It's a bit like a romantic version of All About Eve or something and um uh and so in such cases it's just like about how you tell this familiar tale basically and yeah like how you deal with all the details and stuff and how you pull everything off um and uh i thought it was an impressively well-made film in a lot of ways lady gaga is very good in it so like you know, lady gaga lady gaga um is like i think she delivers like a really really good performance and there is a sort of interesting kernel there about the way in which um, she herself has sort of built her uh, pop persona on being this like oversized, like overly theatrical kind of comment on the like superficiality of pop personas, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. She had that like fame monster album and stuff. And it's all it's all like you want a star like this is a fucking star. Look <laughs> at my crazy shit, you know. Um, so it makes a lot of sense in a way for her to be make, um, making this film about somebody who starts off as a uh, just like a nightclub singer and then like grows to like great stardom and has to decide how like what sort of persona to adopt and what sort of person to be once you become famous um, and what sort of it means to like be writing songs like when your audience changes and your life changes and, and that kind of thing um and i just think she inhabits the role really really well yeah and, i think she's and, the best thing in it yeah and her and bradley cooper have got pretty good on-screen chemistry i think and it's also probably the best that i've seen bradley cooper in a film he is um doing a real performance <laughs> but i don't think it's like it's certainly not without vanity um i mean inevitably he's starring <laughs> and directing the film <laughs> um but i don't think it's like overly showy I mean, he is kind of doing an impression of Sam Elliott, who also stars in the film. And so the scenes when they're talking to each other is a little bit like, you know, that you know the thing you do when you're trying to annoy somebody by just repeating what uh. they say in a sort of <laughs> mock version of their voice. It's a little bit like that. Uh, they're both like insanely growly. Uh, I listened earlier today to an um, interview, uh, Sam Mayo, uh, Simon Mayo interviewing, not Sam Mayo, <laughs> that's... That's sort of the cross between me and him. <laughs> um, yeah, Simon Mayo interviewing Bradley Cooper uh, and Cooper is talking about like the voice and he's like, I spent two to three hours a day just trying to get the voice right for like months and months or something. So, okay. okay. A lot of work went into Whoa. being really fucking gravelly. Um, 
but it's you know it does sound very <laughs> unlike him i guess it's just you know it's a complete kind of character that he's created i think quite effectively and he does a really good job at the guitar and the singing and stuff um and i thought that they they do make a good on-screen couple and basically the focus of the film is quite narrowly on their personal relationship in a way that i think is quite effective because some of the tropes around um dealing with fame and celebrity when you're a famous singer and you're either like a bit jaded and old um or you're a sort of rising star who's being thrust into the spotlight there's a lot of cliches there that the film sort of you know includes but doesn't really dwell upon yeah because it knows that we've all seen that kind of stuff a lot a lot of times before and isn't really trying to um make big moments out of some of those things and instead just wants to create big moments basically out of the central relationship which is what the film should be trying to do yeah i think that was the most successful part of the movie was um the fact i think unlike previous versions it wasn't like she's this naive ingenue and he's this grizzled veteran like it feels quite modern in that she is quite bullshy and outgoing as someone who would want to get in the music business would be like and she's not like you know, uh, pressured into doing things she doesn't want to do. She's a very sort of strong vision about how she wants her career to go. And yeah, she's quite fully her. formed as a performer from the first scene. Yeah, and I also think the all the live music stuff was really good. And I, mean, I, I've it's like I've performed many times on a huge stage, but <laughs> it felt very authentic. That kind of stuff, that kind of the energy of a live performance. I'm sort of slightly. Uh, less enamored with the film purely just because I wasn't that invested in I think they got good chemistry but I don't think the film does enough with it and it's two hours and 15 minutes long yeah it is quite long and so and I think I kind of enjoyed the first half which is the quote-unquote fun a bit because you know it's the sort of they meet and all the crazy stuff happens you know like most relationships before the tedium of the (laughs) the The rest of match yeah. yeah um and I just found the second half quite sort of tonally and visually a bit flat. There's a lot of just, uh, I mean, basically, it's like if you're with the movie by the point you get to this film, you'll love the rest of it or, you'll, you know, be on board of it. And if you're not, I think you'll struggle with it. And I did. And there's just a lot of like emoting in close ups and touching hands. And it's very sort of like, I don't know, it just definitely has like a groove it enters, I think. And uh, because the plot is quite familiar it just took a long time to reach the conclusion for me. And by the end, I was like, I'm I'm kind of ready to go home. You know, like I didn't leave. Like my sister saw it before me. And she said like when the credits rolled, like everyone was crying around her. And I was like, I was just really thinking about what I was going to have for dinner, really. I sort of checked out the movie about 20 minutes before the movie had ended. Yeah, I saw it in a pretty small screen. And I have to say that like when the credits rolled on it, people did like immediately leave. It wasn't like people were not like basking <laughs> in the like, you know, the wonder. Which is not like see. most films, that's what happens. So I know, it's, I know. It's not yeah. like a... um, and I also personally find Bradley Cooper's character a little problematic. I think his uh, character, well, it's very fitting in a way. His character is a bit like his music, which is a very uh, particular strand of folk music, which I personally just don't like. So this is not really a good review. It's like, I personally don't like this thing. Um, which is that kind of folk music, which is just very nostalgic and romantic about your own failings. Like I wrote a ballad about how I cheat on you, which is, and how sorry I am. It's like, well, just don't cheat on people, you know? Yeah. And he is, uh, I don't know. I think you're supposed to find him a very tragic figure, but I found his self-pity reached a point of diminishing returns for me quite quickly. And I feel like by the end, you're supposed to 
like really be on his side but i was just like someone should just slap this guy <laughs> i, I kind of like i think you, you know my sympathy had run dry on that character yeah before the plot had i think that's quite <laughs> understandable um i would say just on a slightly random note like lady gaga's family is a bit of an like oddly broad uh thing although i did kind of enjoy it like andrew dice clay plays her dad and she's just like surrounded by these like old new yorkers who are just kind of dumb you know, like, he also has like, Dave Chappelle's his friend. He's like, all our friends are stand-up comedians to, like, inject <laughs> some humor into this film. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, was rather sad. Hey, I'm an old guy, you know. I'm an old Jewish guy. I got my little daughter. She's going to be a big star someday. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's like, for a debut, it's very accomplished, and I can see why people like it. I just, you know, just wasn't for me. i say the final thing I want to say that I really liked about the film. I thought the music is very successful in it um the songs they definitely his genre of music is not one that appeals to me like whatsoever like <laughs> country rock is not something that i ever listened to uh but i thought that the songs are very well written and they're basically dramatically believable like you know they sound yeah, that's like very they could true. Be hit songs yeah you know and every time something is supposed to sound like a certain kind of song it does um yeah, and no, it's no. all i think it's like what you're saying about the live performances being good is very true but it's like i think it's impressively focused in the dramatic purpose that the music is used for yeah um, and it's not like a straightforward musical where like drama is like interspersed with songs but um you know there are occasions when you will hear an entire song and occasions where you just get snippets and it all feels like it's been quite carefully worked <laughs> out as to where everything is fitting in um and it's really integrated with the drama of the movie as a whole i think all the songs um and i just thought that was really effective and i'm partly influenced here by having uh we both recently saw vox lux um yeah uh, we're starring natalie portman at london film festival which will be coming out a bit later on um and not to spoil our review of that but like one of the things that was not that successful about that movie is that that the songs in that it's also about like a big star and like her rise you know to fame and that kind of thing and uh the songs in that feel like they were bolted on basically after the fact like some you know he was just emailed someone was like write me some songs whereas uh i think in this film it's not the case at all it's all like really part of the whole in a way that I thought was done quite well yeah, yeah i agree because often there's movies it's like this is set in the real world it's like does the actor bradley cooper exist in this universe it's like a question like i didn't have which is often the way it's like when there's like celebrities playing themselves like but you both know each other in real life so usually like you know a movie can come a bit unstuck but yeah she's on snl and stuff and i was like yeah this is a thing that could be on SNL. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, whereas Vox Lux, Brady Corbet, is, I don't think he's left his, like, house of 60mm <laughs> Carl Fiodreo movies for, like, five years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No grip on the 21st century whatsoever, but made a movie about it. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Star is born was slightly difficult viewing for me because it starred my attacker <laughs> willem oh shit what happened uh with you what happened with you and willem the drag queen willem i once saw him do a drag show is it him or her what's the pronouns you use with drag queens? well i think him right because... he's him he's like a cisgender guy it's not trans yeah so you, i guess you would say him is... yeah yeah but his character is a woman yeah yeah but like his i think he deliberately chooses the name willem like they've all got names like you know jinx monsoon he's like i'm yeah. willem <laughs> uh saw him in a bar in ealing do a show it's very entertaining and then i went to get a drink and then like i was turning around to give a drink to my then girlfriend and he was going to like a sort of vip lounge and he and he cut my balls and he gave me an approving nod 
Jeez. Sexually assaulted. That is a bit. By that the drag is, queen. That's not on at all. I think it was all part of the crazy drag world. I was like, I think he just knows. I mean, I looked about a place, to be honest with you. It was quite a sort of flamboyantly dressed crowd. And I just looked like some geography teacher who was there. I don't but, think that is a... So I think ex- maybe he was like picking on the square. That's even worse though. <sighs> yeah. I don't think that's on. No. Anyway, Willem's so behavior. when he was in the movie, I was, you know, how could I enjoy like, the film? Fuck you. I didn't really take it to you personally. <laughs> <laughs> One star. Because <laughs> it included the abuse of Willem. Yeah, but that's a celebrity anecdote I have about the star of A Star Is Born. He's the star, right? <laughs> yeah, he's the star of the yeah. movie. Well, I'm sorry to hear that that happened to you. Yeah. Um, and if you the guy to... you played the limo driver <laughs> one time, <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know, that's the rest of my, <laughs> I don't have any anecdotes about every single, it was in the, on a train once with Sam Elliott. Sam, you fucking wedged me. You <laughs> wedged me. You called me a, a... He stuck his tongue in my ear. Yeah. <laughs> it's really strange I was like you know that guy from Hulk he put his tongue in my ear it's mental <laughs> no one believed me alright friends that is the conclusion of this week's episode of Film Chat next week we will be discussing uh, Possum Possum this uh, kind of edgy British psychological thriller horror movie from Garth Marenghi co-creator Matthew Holness which is getting lots of good reviews it's on demand right now but we're going to a one of the rest for cinema screenings because we support British film on this podcast. We certainly do. Well, at least we do this one time. We certainly do this one time. And then we'll be illegally downloading Widows. <laughs> <laughs> Got a sweet uh, HD cam uh, rip for that. So well, I've seen it. You might see it. Yeah. I'll review it. I'll go to this cinema. Okay. Probably. Probably. And we'll be talking about that. Sick. All right. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye. Let's do it. Um, well, I'm a New York Italian. I'm just a, a Italian girl from New York. But I'm an Italian girl from New York. Just an Italian girl from New York. Just a young Italian American girl from New York. That I'm Italian and from New York. Good, good Brooklyn Italian girl. Yeah, that's right. From Brooklyn, I'm Italian. I'm a strong Italian female. I'm a, uh, a strong Italian woman. Yes, well, I'm an Italian woman. So, you know, I'm Italian and, you know. I'm from an Italian family. Uh, immigrant Italian family. Strong Italian family. Close Italian family. I'm a good Italian family. Very traditional Italian. I'm Italian. Well, I'm Italian. I'm Italian, so. I'm just an Italian girl. I'm Italian girl. I'm Italian. I'm Italian. But I'm Italian. I'm very Italian. I'm very Italian. I'm really Italian. Actually, I'm fully Italian. I'm Italian. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.